0: On March 3, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a discussion with Alina Munjo Papiti, Professor of Democracy Studies at the Herdy School of Governance in Berlin, Germany. The talk, titled The Path to Denmark How Do Societies Develop Control of Corruption, was part of the Ash Center's Comparative Democracy Seminar Series. The conversation was moderated by Tariq Massoud, Associate Professor of International Relations at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. All right. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Uh, We are among the luckiest people in Cambridge, Massachusetts at this particular hour uh, because we have with us uh, Professor Alina Mungio-Pipidi, who is a professor of democracy studies at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin, Germany. Alina has a very distinguished uh, career, a very long CV. She studied political science here at Harvard after completing a PhD in social psychology at the University of Iasi in Romania. She chairs the European Research Center for Anti-Corruption and State Building Research and she heads a couple of EU fund, big EU funded projects, one of which is on anti-corruption, another which is on uh, promoting digital whistleblowing, uh, which is housed at the Hurdy School. She is an advisor on issues of governance measurement and anti-corruption to a variety of bodies, including the European Commission, the UNDP, Freedom House, the World Bank, among others. She is a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Democracy and her research basically focuses on how you move towards more decent, accountable government that is responsive to its citizens and which political leaders do not prey on their citizens. Basically what we here call um, following uh, Jenny, sort of getting to Denmark, right? How did Denmark become Denmark? We hold it up as this great exemplar of good governance. The question is how did uh, we get there. Um, and this is what uh, Alina uh, works on, and that's what she's going to talk about today. How do societies develop control of corruption? So please join me in welcoming Professor Alina Munjo Pepidi.
1: Thank you, Tarek. It's uh, great to be here again after quite some years, and thank you for. Uh, for inviting me. I uh, definitely realize the, the privilege of this and uh, I'm very happy to, to greet you all. So uh, about, well, let me just say one word of myself to make my complicated biography easy to understand. I was 25 in 1989 in Ceausescu's Romania, which means that I have a life before and a life after. So I spent 25 years under communist and the rest since then in transition, so to speak. So despite the fact that I live in uh, Berlin, which, by the way, is the perfect quintessential central European city. It's a city in endless transition itself. We have East Berlin, West Berlin. So for us, it's still you know, moving, going somewhere. Uh, I am very much a person who uh, is interested in the non-OECD world, in the developing world, in the world which still believes it's transiting somewhere, although of course this is not certain as uh, Thomas Caruthers very insightfully <coughs> observed quite a while ago. So some of you might recall that a number of years ago, nearly 18 years now, I think that the director of the World Bank, Jay Wolfenson, called the whole world at the crusade against corruption. The choice of words was, of course, very unhappy. It was a replica of the earlier Richard Nixon cruised against, global crusade against cancer, and we know how, how that happened. It was simply put too ambitious. But ambitious as, as it is, nevertheless, it realized to create quite a significant mobilization, mobilizations in terms of creation of a legal anti-corruption regime. Many things happened in this interval. We now have a United Nations Convention Against Corruption. We have quite a lot, another variety of practices, for instance, criminalizing, bribing abroad, and even you know lawsuits following this, a significant number of lawsuits, so many that some scholars by now have significant numbers to run quantitative papers on the number of lawsuits, for instance, on the basis of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was the first of these. So a lot of important things seem to have happened in this year plus the extraordinary awareness that you you know, you know. The day when Corruption Perception Index of Transparency International is published, a lot of governments uh, around the world, and in particular the spokesperson, state, stand near the phones very worried how they're going to look like. And uh, each time there are a lot of calls and threats and denials in the media. So, you know, it's been fabulous, fabulous awareness, unprecedented. However, as uh, I noticed in a, in a paper for uh, the Norwegian Agency for Development four years ago, it was reconfirmed by the big um, OECD report of last year, authored by very distinguished Robert Klitgård, one of the pioneers in, uh, in the scholarship against corruption, after this interval, after these 18 years, we do not have one success case of anti-corruption globally to show. This doesn't mean to say that there are not countries after the Second World War which have not progressed from worse to better governance. But quintessentially put, there is not one country, one case that the international community worked in that we can showcase as a place where our strategies, our efforts, our conditionality and all this wrapped together uh, produced the good, which is a different governance order, a country which is now no longer particularistic and universalistic. This doesn't exist. So this research of mine started more or less out of this frustration. Right, And the first thing that I did and which is very present in the book, by the way I have to apologize myself, I tried to organize with Cambridge that they sent some books but it seems that no books arrived here so all I could do is that at the end distribute some, some flyers of the book and have some hope that the book exists in, in some academic bookshop here. I didn't have time to, to check on this. So the first thing that I did uh, actually on the book to answer this is that being by training a social psychologist I reverted a little bit the burden of proof the other way around. So I ask myself, not why do you find this infringement that we call corruption, but rather, why there are so few countries in the world which seem to have arrived to a reasonable control of corruption, countries where corruption is an exception and public integrity is a norm. You may be surprised, but there are very few countries of this type. I'm an optimist. I think that there are around 50. Then there is Douglas North, who's a pessimist, who thinks they're under 20 or something like this, which really means that what we have to explain is this handful of countries rather than the rest of the world. For me, this is not easy, not difficult to conceptualize, because being a social psychologist, I am really very much inclined to believe what is worse of, of people, and especially of, of social groups and everything. And uh, therefore, I start by with a presumption in the book that. Uh, any group of people who shares resources will find great trouble in securing that these resources are fairly distributed across members of the group and always people with more power will try to get uh, a bigger share. This seems like extremely trivial but somehow this is not accepted in the current anti-corruption approach. The current anti-corruption approach is based on this deviation zero acceptance, tolerance, zero of corruption, where we roughly presume that a norm exists there of integrity and corruption is just a deviation out of it. And this is what I strongly question. I go the other way around and I ask the developmental question, which is really, how can you arrive at this equilibrium where people who have the possibility of getting more than they're due out of their public resources do not do this? Why don't they do this? You know, how, how do you get there? And of course the solution which was uh, sort of primed by, by development agencies in the last year is that this happens due to modernity. Roughly you get modern and the moment when you get modern this stops this kind of spoiling of public resources, stops happening. Right, because what happens when you get modern? Well, you know, when you get modern, that means that you have a representative government, good people get elected who no longer spoil. It means you have an autonomous bureaucracy. These people come here from extraterrestrial space who no longer are individuals who engage, like all of us, in particular relationships, where we are naturally you know, uh, inclined to favor relatives, friends, people we've been in college with, and to do favors to these people, m- treat them in a better way than we treat the rest of people the moment when we have you know, some excess over public resources. But we presume that these individuals are somehow completely autonomous towards private interest and able to act impartially, impersonally, as famously Max Weber described bureaucracy, and uh, in, the, in the public interest. Well, I question this. I question these presumptions. This presumption seems very naive. And anyone who is uh, like uh, you have a distinguished scholar here who studies formal versus informal institutions at Harvard knows that, in fact, the number of countries pretending to be modern had never been greater. Frank Fukuyama created this category, which seems you know, uh, hard to grasp at the first sight, which is called modernization without development, right? seems very nonsensical. What is modernization without development? Well, modernization without development is basically not modernization. Is a, a kind of modernization where, in fact, the main important thing, this passage to impersonal relations, relations which empower market and which allow a government based on the idea of citizenship and no longer on the idea of favored clans or families or parties, which is how most governments actually operate by, uh, this more or less is uh, the, the rule of the game. So uh, the third important presumption of, of modernity is that voters are very effective principles, and voters sanction corrupt politicians. right? So all this is supposed to, to work. Most corruption literature therefore relies on principal agent theory, which is you know, roughly presuming that it's just an information asymmetry. Get a little bit more information and control the people who are deviant, and things will fall into place. And this is what we have been doing roughly in, in, in the past 20 years with the successes that I, that I already started by discussing. Of course these kind of reservations of mine are actually very old reservations and in a previous generation of literature Sam Huntington had already noted that although modernity seems to be the solution to this government problem, somehow it is not because once countries start to modernize in this transition from traditionalism, from classic patrimonialism to modernization corruption seems to grow doesn't seem to go down and this is a you know an empirical observation that anyone coming from a developing country i think has noted a number of times right and also this kind of uh, of um, increased corruption of modernizing countries seems not to be an easy phase So say it's it's a phase you know it's an early democracy it's just a phase they'll get they'll get over it it seems that, in fact, elites in these countries develop some sort of, uh, you know, vested interest in the status quo, and they really don't invest much in change. So the situation today, when we look, actually, seems to. Uh, due to fantastic democratization. Now, I have to recall myself that my chair is called uh, very nicely. The German government gave me a chair which was called democracy professor. Imagine this for somebody who was uh, you know, born and went to school in Ceausescu's Romania. You know, So um, when you look, due to the unprecedented democratization and the fact that we have so many more democracies out there presently than autocracies, in fact, that means that we have twice as many corrupt, systematically Corrupt democracies than autocracies. The score is about 80 to, to 40, right? It may change from one year to another as Freedom House ranks these countries. So, what does this mean? On the other hand, if you look at the group of countries which control corruption best, you will find that actually most of them are democracies, older democracies. Very few autocracies made it. I mean, literally, you know, we are down to Singapore and the usual examples that people give. So, yes. In the group of countries which control corruption well, in this minority group, it seems that old democracies, and only them, found some sort of, of secret. But if you look presently at the challenge around the world, you will see that, in fact, more than 80 democracies struggle with systematic corruption. In other words, whoever comes to government in this country spoils public resources. This is the rules of the game in politics. Governments are regularly changed, but whoever comes does roughly the same, and the game starts all over again. Versus 40 autocracies, which are in a way more classic. I mean, in other words, the ruler and his clan, family, military aides are those who who get rich. And this shows that it's actually very difficult to solve this problem by top-down approaches. Once you are already a democracy, once you already have parties which come to government, and who have the power to actually reshuffle the civil service and the bureaucracy, uh, the reform of the state becomes very much, we argue, I argue in the book and other, other people in our quite large research group. We are 20 universities in this 10 million project, anticorp, Corruption is very much becomes um, a collective action problem. It's not a principal agent problem. Most people do uh, comply by the rule of the game. So if the rule of the game in a society is corruption, this is how how people will behave. This doesn't mean, I mean, this can be interpreted in a quite narrow, strict cultural sense. Some societies are meant to be corrupt. But it can also be uh, interpreted a little bit different. And my interpretation is, if you notice a little bit, people, countries don't like being corrupt. And we find a very, very strong correlation, for instance, between brain drain and corruption. It's a correlation of over 90%. So in other words, people who are competitive, people who are best, flee from corrupt societies, and go towards merit-based societies, quite a lot. Of course, this, in the other hand, shows how difficult the problem of building a critical mass of individuals who want to change the rule of the game is in these societies. Right? This is like the perfect definitions of a a vicious circle. These people go out. So the theory that I look at is actually fairly uh, different from uh, the current theory in political science, where definitely I have connections with uh, this institutionalist group working around um, North Wallace and Weingast and other people. But more or less, I'm not looking so much at formal organizations of elections, of parties. I test all this. And I find all this to be quite irrelevant. So my theory is really grounded like in grand classic historical sociology theory. In Eisenstadt, interpersonal exchanges, in the concept of extractive versus uh, inclusive institutions, which very much correspond to the open uh, access versus limited access order in North. I call this ethical universalism, the institution by which public resources are uh, divided fairly and equally among uh, everyone, versus particularism, the institution in which you can always guess what somebody would take from public resources if you know who that person is. And if you are from a corrupt society, you know exactly what I mean. I ask you, where are you from? Who are your connections? It's like in a Jane Austen novel. You always know whom a girl is going to marry if you ask about her family connections, right? That are the number one determinant. Once you're past the the family connections, then you are into the world of merit and market and impersonal relationships where things are far less Predictable. So the research questions that I put, therefore, are why do some societies manage to control corruption to keep it an exception? Corruption is unavoidable in any society. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I worked as a UNDP academic advisor in the Balkans. You know, I'm a direct witness to the fact that from whatever culture you bring someone, when you bring them in a place without constraints, as for instance, Kosovo was, the first, you know, person who was in charge of the Kosovo privatization fund came on one of the top three best control control of corruption countries in the world, he disappeared one day with all the collateral fund, (laughs) simply because it was just entrusted to him to keep in his room without any control at all, right? So temptation was simply far too grand, right? But what I meant to say earlier is that I don't interpret this this is one reason why I do not, you know, go for cultural interpretations, because I know that if on the other hand you take a Kosovo from a country which doesn't even exist in full right, but which is entirely corrupt, and bring this Kosovo to Harvard since he's a bright fellow, he can come to Harvard and study, you will discover he's not gonna try bribing his professors, right? So there is nothing you know, corrupt about being a Kosovo. It's simply that rules of the game shape the behavior of people. And rules of the game what, uh, is what most people do. And most people do this due to a number of circumstances that we can understand and, and study. And what I ask is that, is perhaps the international anti-corruption industry right? And the superior performance of these countries, which control corruption well, is related to the way they organize things? This is very simple then. We all organize things the way they do, right? And don't forget that I live in Germany. I mean, Germans have an absolute passion to sell German law to whoever will have it. And uh, sometimes I raise a finger in these development discussions and I said, why are we even discussing passing legislation in this country which does not have rule of law? Maybe we should instead thinking of some transitional arrangement to include, to enlarge the number of people who are subject to the law, because many of them seem to be really in living in perfect impunity. And they say, yes, you're right, you're right, of course you're right, there's no rule of law, we don't expect this law, but at least at the end of our intervention, they'll have a perfect body of laws in this country, which is better than nothing. We don't think rule of law can be solved. And not, you know, in the expectation horizon of of donor agencies, used to be one, two years. I think now that we are evolving a little bit, and donors start to conceive that if they want to, lead this crusade if they want to move a country from what is really limited access order to open access order, which is a revolution, it's more difficult than changing a political regime, then you cannot work with a one year or two years perspective, right? But generally most budget, this is how they're done. So the question is, can I deliver rule of law by the end of, of this year? No, I can't. I cannot, all right? But I have 10 millions to spend. And then what do I do? Well, okay, at least I'll leave you 10 bright Ethical codes that you know nobody will ever uh, read, uh, let alone uh, implement. So the question that I ask then is: uh, Maybe it's not organization because organization we seem to have tried and it doesn't work. Maybe it's something which is in the inherent nature of these countries. Maybe these countries already have arrived at a certain type of behavior which makes corruption more difficult. Again, I'll give another you know examples of my East European German culture clash. Uh, in Eastern Europe, actually in, in Harvard Square as well, if I remember correctly from my student years here, everybody crosses on a red line in complete impunity. Even if they see some cars, they cross if the car is, is far enough, right? In Germany, nobody does that. Not only nobody does that, it may not be any car inside, but in my first years in Germany, I had the experience that actually people yelled at me, especially mother with young children yelled at me and say, what are you doing? How can I tell my child that this is simply not doable if he sees an adult like you crossing on the red line, even if there is no car inside. So in other words, you know, institutions are very are easier, norms are easier to enforce when people already endorse them, when people behave that way. Right? And this creates quite a big problem because if you live in a place where most people are corrupt, you will tend to do what most people do. Simply because it's a very high cost in these countries to behave differently, we somehow presume that people will take this risk, and uh, we imagine it's enough to give some sort of whistleblower protection legislation to countries. That's a very, very popular thing. You know I go around the world all the time with this uh, lawyers who are whistleblower protection experts. You know there is not one country where they can prove, that whistleblower protection legislation changed anything. But nevertheless, they are obsessed by the fact that laws have to be better, and they always presume that loopholes in the laws prevent people from being whistleblowers. No, people are preventing from being whistleblowers simply by the attitude of the people around them, right? People around you are your best protection. If they would approve of you going against the rule of the game, then you will find the courage to do it. If actually the next day nobody will you know, dare to sit next to you, no law will encourage anyone to be a whistleblower unless one has a, an exit plan, which is an exile plan, which is more or less, since I started as an anti-corruption activist, what happened in, in my situation. OK. So the next question that I ask, then, is how did this control of corruption in countries where they are got built historically? And here is my research strategy, which I was you know, lucky enough to have this European funding to pursue it. First, in order to understand if countries change or not, we have to have some instruments which are sensitive to change if you work in this area you probably work like me and there you are equally frustrated like me with the notoriously insensitive perception indicators that either transparency international or world bank do which are roughly statistical aggregates of um, opinions of bank experts and few other people like this on how corrupt countries are i'm not completely negative about these instruments. I correlate them in my work with what people think in surveys and with various other measurements. And I find that more often than not, people give right answers to this. Not precise answers, but right. Why is this? Because people know what the rules of the game are. If you ask the people what is the exception and what is the norm in a country, they will know this. They will know this. You know, I mean, if you work as an anthropologist, Now and then, when I get bored of statistics, I work as an anthropologist. I go in a village with my students, and then I immediately, uh, in three days, we figure out the village. We just go and say, villages are by design, places. Villages in Eastern Europe are by design, or in Africa, places where everything is, uh, you know, is a shortage of everything. So you just go around, and I say, you know, I need to find a place to sleep. I need to find some wood to, to hit myself. Whom do I have to speak with? I mean, this is the key question. And in three days, you're going to be told who are the brokers, people who intermediate access to these resources, right? It's all based on particularism. Nobody's going to tell you, well, look, it's on this website. What applies to you applies to everyone else. That's, that's not how the world really works, except in a minority of cases. So what do I need to do is to develop indicators, however, so you know, these are rough indicators, they tell you what the norm is, but what if the norm is changing? You need to have something to appreciate one year after another. I mean, look at India, look at Brazil, we now have these big anti-corruption movements around the world. Do we know if these countries are really going in the right direction? Sometimes people who are engaged in activism are very discouraged. I've been many years engaged in activism, I mean for many, many years I've been the Informal leader of all anti corruption coalitions in Romania. Uh, well, if you look in World Bank charts, you will see that Romania has not changed in the past 10 years significantly. All change falls within the standard error. Okay, if you're a statistician, that's not a big thing, but if you are somebody who, like me, has been in court over 40 times, you know, 15 years ago, sued by ministers of internal affairs, justice, heads of secret services, now with us suing the government to establish, doing strategic litigation to, to change rule of the games. And after so many years, you see that actually there is no change. Believe me, this is very, very discouraging. So we need an instrument to understand, a more sensitive instrument, to change, general change, and to policy intervention, to understand if things change after you do something, after you do some sort of policy interventions. The other thing that we do is that we document uh, policies uh, comparatively and interventions. We have taken over through one of these projects a database of World Bank, which was called Public Accountability Mechanisms, and which looks at a number of anti-corruption tools, freedom of information, for instance, financial disclosures, conflict of interest regulations, a number of other things. And we document quite a lot of them. And then we look if countries which adopt these instruments progress more than countries which don't, right? Controlling for for a number of other things. The other thing that we do is that we look at the few countries which made it. I know I told you there is not one. I told you there is not one which made it as part of our donor-driven international anti-corruption approach. But some countries which changed after 1945, they exist and we look at this selected small group of countries in eastern europe this is really down to looking at estonia which is the only country what do i understand by made it right because there is a lot of change you can change you know a little bit but unless unless you pass it to the phase where clearly the norm now is ethical universalism and everyone and public integrity and everyone would identify this, you cannot really be sure if change is sustainable. And these are very, very few situations, countries which which changed it. And for sure, you know, I would not say that for instance Romania passed to this stage, although I see it's a lot of optimism about Romania. I'll mention this a little bit later. So I look at these countries, and I try to understand what happened in these countries. What empowered the change in these countries? How did elites decide to become more inclusive? So in other words, I trace virtuous governance circles. Most economists that you read and look at, they trace prosperity governance centers. And this is why they end like uh, the Atomoglu and Robinson book, saying that actually prosperity starts once you decide to move from extractive institutions to inclusive institutions, but my question is really why does anybody decide to do this? And this is what I look at. I look at these governance transitions. It's rather, you know, a tough question. It seems to me that that is the difficult. That is the difficult part. I definitely buy the one that after you do this, uh, societies develop in a in a broader way. Okay. So my concepts, I already sort of defined to them, just two words to say that uh, in the book I explain a little bit more. First, it seems to us very natural to presume that ethical universalism and public integrity are the norms. But this is a wrong presumption. We should simply not presume this. A couple of years ago, when local elections were in Romania, for instance, my brother, who's a very successful award-winning film director, was completely devastated because his maid told him, I have to leave you. I have to leave you. My brother, one uh, in this village hall, he's now a mayor, and all of us have to go work with f- for him my brother said, why would you go work for your brother as a mayor? It's very poorly paid. So, you know, the guy, of course, fired everyone who was working until then and hired his family. She said, why would you go? I mean, it's, civil, it's public service in a village, very poorly paid. And she said, well, I have to go. So first, he has to hire us. What would the rest of the village think if he would not hire us instead? I mean, that's that's his duty. Second, we cannot let him down, you know. So they all went there, and of course, they don't only live out of the salaries. They, she helps her brother and the rest of them organize this small spoiling in the village, but which is what government is, more or less. right? So do not expect that ethical universalism is actually the norm. What I do in the book is to show that ethical universalism in the same way that you know, people like Wilson and others showed in other areas, traveled quite a lot to arrive from where we find it first. In Cicero to the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. But in the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, amazingly, it is spelled out. The Convention doesn't say what corruption is. It completely falls short. There were huge political battles over various definitions of corruption. So very UN Solomonic style, it was decided in the end that corruption is not going to be defined in the treaty. Instead, it's put quite clearly what the good benchmark is. And the good benchmark is ethical universalism, a government which treats all its citizens fairly and equally, which does policy making based on consultation, who is transparent, responsive, and the rest of it. It's amazing. It's really like a spelling out that all governments in the world are modern. And if you look at what happens, you will discover that 170 countries in the world, which is most of them, right? Have by now uh, ratified this convention. I mean, it's a UN convention. It's not binding. Nobody's going to send an intervention force if you don't respect it. Actually, the governments have kept from themselves the right to keep secret progress of implementing the convention. <laughs> we fight this regularly, or all UNCAC state parties. We fight a lot. I mean, US and EU are pushing uh, for, a um, lot of other coalitions push against. But nevertheless, the simple fact that countries agreed that this is the norm is quite spectacular it's exactly as if you want with a human uh, with a convention of human rights it didn't be, wasn't implemented the next day but it created for a whole generation of activists uh, a benchmark they could refer to citizens of this country can now you know put in question their governments journalists whoever so how do i operationalize all this in order to to measure it so what I do is that I defined roughly, first, I only work at macro level. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not interested in individual corruption. I am not interested even in organization corruption. Right? I only work sector and country. And I must tell you that sector and country tend to be very consistent. In other words, it's rather an exception to find clean islands in in, uh, in countries where the norm is actually particularism. It happens, but it's rather difficult. So I define control of corruption as capacity of a given country to keep corruption an exception. And I measure what is the rule and what is the exception and how this changes. How do I do this? For instance, I have public contract data. We live in the era of big data. So this project of mine, DigiWist, for instance, what it does is that puts online procurement data from EU 28 plus other seven neighborhood countries. So it's some sort of Europe. 35, all public contracts data. All this public contracts data allow us to trace government favoritism to understand if public contracts are given as they should, randomly, or if we can find particular patterns of favoritism. The next thing that I do is that I try to understand where this favoritism comes from. And again, it is fabulous how big data helps. In many countries around the world, not only in, uh, in Eastern Europe, where we are very into e-government, but uh, also in China, for instance. Elected officials have to complete these financial disclosure statements. That means that lists exist of companies where officials are or have ever been shareholders. In other words, companies related to people withhold the authority, right? So in other words, I can come up with two lists of companies. One is the list of companies which win far too frequent, non-randomly. We do this, it's called data mining, right? We look for patterns and lists of companies which are politically connected. And bingo, imagine. I mean, in China, in Eastern Europe, and everywhere else where you look at lists, uh, we seem to have a significant connection. And this is not related to democracy so much as it would happen in China, but it's very much related to power. Whoever is in the situation to distribute money seems to distribute very much to himself, to which means to his party, to his clan, to his family, depending on, on society. So this is what I do. This is only one you know, way of tracing. I mean, in, in modern democracies, it's political party, which is generally the vehicle of particularism. In Ghana, it can be the tribe, for instance. I mean, you find, for instance, that mayors from, uh, from cities which are not in the same tribe with the government receive less money out of subnational transfers, right? Despite the fact that there is some benchmark on how to distribute public money. I'll give you some examples immediately to make it a bit more concrete. So what you see here are three different cycles of Romanian government, socialist in red, liberal in blue, and a sort of radical party in, in orange. And what you see on the front line is how much of the flood's money, money dedicated to natural emergency resources, after I extracted all the natural emergency resources which existed, mayors from the government party received. So mayors from government party in 2004, the socialists got 49% of floods money, again in the absence of floods. I took out all the floods money. Uh, Mayors of liberal parties took 45% of the floods money, the government party, and finally, these people took 62%. And on the second line, you see how much, actually, share of the vote these people had out of total population. So these people had 36, these people had 16, so watch what a big disproportion is here. You had, this was a minority government, you have 60% of the mayors in the country, but you take 45% out of the natural emergency fund to yourself. And if you look at these blue people, this is this year before the crisis starts. That's an extra budgetary fund. It's not even approved by Parliament. Parliament, let's say, approved 10 millions. And then you claim it's a big emergency, and you raise it up to 100 million. So this is simply spoiling the state budgets through sub- this subnational transfers. And here, this proportion again, increases again why because the crisis hits the total goes down so the only way for these mayors to to keep their their share of the lion is basically to uh, to increase the disproportion to get more for themselves right and once you have this public spending data out once you have this in a digital form and everyone can watch it it's far more difficult to do this this thing i mean this figure i published it first time like seven years ago. And since then, we published quite a lot of data of these types. Other European countries simply moved ahead, like Estonia and Slovenia, and made all their public expenses online, down to bills of 100 euros, really. It's called a public expense online tracking system, because there is no other way of, of stopping this. Here is an example coming from Hungary. So, what I showed you first is about state budget. Here is about market relations, right? What you see in red is like the top 30 companies, previous government, who are doing fairly well. They collapse here. The green line is elections, right? And you see how another top 30 companies replace them when the government changes. So, in other words, which is the second government, is Mr. Orban government. So, in other words, there is a top. Of winning companies who come to government out of public contracts, who come to government when government changes. And this you can very much follow. I mean, we have quite substantial data on this showing how it works. So, what is my argument, right? So, this is how we trace it. We can do a lot of this. And now I have for the first time time series data, for instance, from Romania to show how many contracts are awarded in a particular way versus a universalistic way. I mean, in an openly particularistic way. I Granted, there, there must be some he, more hidden, more difficult to get. But still, it's enough because it shows that the norm is particularist, unfortunately. So my argument is that control of corruption is built over time as an equilibrium, as an equilibrium between two big, rough categories of factors. One factor is like my emergency fund that I showed you earlier. They're simply resources for corruption. The more money you have into discretionary funds or into assistance funds, or you have oil, or you have other resources in public property that people with authority can tap into. And this is an old finding of political science. I'm only adjusting it to make this this theory easy to to understand. Not all these findings are, are my findings. So the size of of, uh, of public goods delivered matters a lot. So this is the number one factor, resources. The second factor is uh, the power discretion, the capacity of the society to check on the discretion of rulers, of politicians and of bureaucrats. But in corrupt countries, politicians and bureaucrats are not separate. That is another thing which has to be understood. And uh, we rely on bureaucrats to check on politicians and the other way around, but they're generally a gang, right? The politician comes comes there and he appoints the agent who's going to, to help him roughly still. And here is where, where I answer Huntington's question. Why is modernization actually increases uh, corruption instead of the other way around? Well, the reason is that political modernization brings something very positive, which is more and more group included into politics. So they are supposed to act as a, as a constraint. But in the same time, it multiplies the resources a lot. During modernization, states, and in particular states which don't have much capacity, are entrusted with more and more tasks, with more and more money. They collect more and more, and they claim they can do health. They claim they can do education. I mean, more often than not, they cannot do any of this. But they collect the resources for all of this. And this creates tremendous opportunity for corruption. And this is how you come to have lists of you know, ghost teachers, ghost pensioners, and a number of, of other things. So the model looks like this. And you will find the, the both the historical argument, I look at this uh, over hundreds of years, but also the limited time series statistical argument, with all the limitations that you know applies to this, on how these opportunities, power discretion, and material resources can be checked by constraints, which I interpret as broad society constraints, demanding citizens, basically, and a judiciary which is autonomous from who is in government. and. You know, this equilibrium can be realized at various levels, so you can very well have a suboptimal equilibrium, which results in a particularistic distribution of public resources. You can have a good equilibrium in which you control. Well, where is development on all this? It is obviously that you are a poor country. Uh, It is far more difficult to get control of corruption. And especially if you are a democracy, right? If you have voters who are below subsistence level, you can buy votes from these voters. They will need to live, right? And this is why we have this very, very close connection between um, public integrity, between control of corruption and democracy. So what I did here is just for visualization. Those of you who are into stats, don't get revolted. This is just to get a picture, right? What you see here is where countries actually should be seeing their human development index, what control of corruption they they should have. Because it is a statistical significant association between the two. And here you don't see them because they are blurred by the picture. They're about 100 and something small, small gray dots, which are countries which can be very well predicted by their human development index. If you know how developed they are, then you can know what kind of control of corruption they have. Sadly, it is a very good prediction of control of corruption to know the education of a country, the literacy of a country by 1900s, which simply I interpret as roughly the number of decades where some demand for good governance exists. So, the more people you have who are literate early and can put some demand on government, the better control of corruption you have today. But that's definitely not a good uh, policy recommendation, right? So, my country is here. That's why you don't see it. Germany is also here. So in other words, they're not doing either worse nor better than they should, seeing their development and what their history has been. But what you see above the lines are actually countries which are doing better, and below the line, countries which are doing worse. The green line here shows you what is the threshold towards really, really good government, government above seven in my decoded scale. And you see here that Denmark, New Zealand, Netherlands, Norway and Singapore are actually absolute achievers. So they do very well, but in other words, they do far better actually than their very good development would predict. And you see that Greece, Italy, Argentina, Mexico are actually doing worse than they should. Russia, Venezuela, whatever, all these countries are doing worse than their development levels would predict. Now, you know, we can discuss this quite a lot, but I interpret it on the fact that there is actually no strict determinism of development. You can do worse or you can do better. This is a matter of human agency and, of course, unfortunately, as I'll tell you in a second, of luck as well. So what don't I discuss in this talk and in the book, except marginally, because I think it doesn't matter very much, is what we already do. What you see here are international anti-corruption agencies, the year when an international uh, anti-corruption agency comes into power, and the control of corruption, the higher the better. And you would expect this line to go up, and this is the average change after you introduce five years before and five years after, right? You would expect it to go up, but it doesn't really go up, right? It goes down. What works? Because we identify also some things which work. But these things which work, we interpret as a complex of factors, as I told you, not as isolated factors. Which What works seems to be digital government in any form, but related with some civil society or media activism. So in other words, uh, e-government services and e-government users combined, countries like Estonia, which have offer a lot of e-government services, but with a lot of citizens to be out there writing e-petitions versus countries like Italy, which is developed enough, offer e-government services, but people are on internet, you know, watching porn or doing whatever. But anyway, not, not looking at, uh, at very boring public expenses of government, right? Any country which is a perfect illustration of what I said so far, it's Estonia. What you see here in red is Estonia's progress on good governance in, in its transition. And what you see in blue, it's its GDP progress. If you look at the slope, you see immediately that actually good governance came first, and growth came after their political reforms. Estonia, it's really a marvelous case in which a group of people who understood governance, because they were neither lawyers nor economists, they were this group of nationalists who wanted, who were afraid of the threat of the Soviet Union, and who wanted to build, so they had a stake in succeeding. They wanted this new country to succeed. And therefore, they reduced dramatically opportunities for corruption. They created a small government where they considered that rule of law must come first. And they, it really worked out. However, if you look more closely, you'll find on YouTube an interview of mine with uh, Prime Minister Mart Lar, who presided over this successful transformation in, in two terms. You will see that. Um, He says in the interview that all important bills, he managed to pass them with one person majority. They had to go to the hospital to take the wife of one of their government colleagues who was a member of parliament because she had just given birth. Because without her, her, none of this Estonian miracle, the country where with one card you can vote, pay uh, your taxes, and pay your parking, right? Uh, None of this would would have happened. So it's a bit of a combination of virtue and, uh, and luck. The book also draws on this other cases. Chile, Uruguay, Taiwan, South Korea, Estonia, Georgia. These are my achievers, more or less. So to end this, I roughly make these uh, this three recommendations. Right? You have a country which is not a democracy, but somehow you have a good principle. In other words, you have the historical luck to have an enlightened despot. And this is the example that I give in the book about the King of Denmark. I worked with a Danish historian to understand why the king of Denmark is the first of the world to ask aristocrats to tell aristocrats you can no longer have an office in this government unless you have a degree from the University of Copenhagen the law department and this happens as early as 1824 because these aristocrats were incompetent were losing wars there was an existential threat you can Find a number of things. But the thing is, the recipe of the King of Denmark exists. And if you have the luck of having an enlightened despot, which we cannot very much as policy experts, however, produce out of a stupid expert who would just extract and extract until the country goes bankrupt, then, you know, my book offers the recipe just follow what the King of Denmark has done in your file. Do you have the luck of having a modern individualistic society with enough demand for good governance? Well, again, Very simple. You can build capacity and come to the more optimal equilibrium. I provide a table exactly on what you should do, this and that. However, there are quite few situations of this way as well. I describe a number of borderline cases, which I think is where we should do battle. I think we're close there. I think we're having these conditions. Finally, none of the above, which is quite a lot of situations. Well, for none of the above, I had to go back to Italy in the 12th century and look at how Italian city-states really organized governance in times prior to modernity, where you could not rely on civil service. Actually, you didn't have any civil service. And you had to organize everything simply by conscription. Everybody supervised one another. And fortunately, some threat existed. So people found quite very, very innovative ways of of pre-modern ways of organizing the government. And I think that we might want to look for inspiration at this kind of, uh, of arrangements, at least for a transitionary phase, rather than going into Afghanistan and creating parallel to Afghan society, a pseudo-modern state uh, to whom we give all these resources for corruption to be even more corrupt. Thank you.
0: That was uh, really tremendous, Alina. So we have about a half hour, uh, maybe a little, yeah, about a half hour for questions. And I'm going to abuse my position and ask you the first question, because what I saw you doing in the beginning of this talk is it sounded like you really wanted to argue against the modernization theory. You wanted to argue against this idea that as societies modernize, they become more likely to control corruption. And you did that by offering what I thought was an unfair caricature of modernization theory that operates through individual preferences. right? So you were saying modernization theory holds that people will somehow become more, less desirous of corruption, more believing in the need for barbarian state institutions that treat everybody fairly and are not particularistic. In the model of modernization theory I operate with doesn't say anything about people's purpose. People are crappy at all times and in all places and would love to steal, as you said, if they have the opportunity. But more modern societies are, as you describe later, ones where there's more civil society, there's more autonomous organization. So if I want to steal, there's all kinds of other actors in society that will say, wait a minute, hold on, you can't. So. So it sounds like that's real. You're, you're not really taking issue with modernization, you're just saying the pathway through which modernization brings about anti-corruption or lack of corruption is through proliferating the groups in society that then have the capacity to restrain uh, corruption. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. I'm not taking issue with modernization at all. What we're taking issue with is something called principal agent theory, which seems to be behind All these approaches, and I think principal agent theory presumes modernization. So what I'm taking issue is with presumptions of modernization, with presumptions of individualism. It's a very wrong presumption to presume that societies are organized like the impersonal state is on one side, and this uh, individual citizens are on the other. That's simply not how many many societies work.
0: Okay, let's open it up, Uh, Jenny. So I'd like
2: to ask a question parallel. We should not just import institutions right and left, and I I love your book. By the way, everyone should buy this book. It's really extraordinary. Um, but, uh, so I'm, I'm with you that about the importation of institutions, but when I look at your uh, solutions or your suggested solutions, solve collective action problems based on the real principles you have, losers and donors. That sounds a little institutional-like to me. I mean, it's a flexible institution. It's a fl- set of institutions that manipulate size, cut down. On, but this sounds to me like an institutional, uh, an institutional kind of solution. It's not a cookie-cutter institutional solution. So just as Tarek said, are you really criticizing modernization theory? I'm saying, are you really criticizing institutional theory writ large? I agree with the cookie-cutter concept, but-
1: Yeah, what I criticize is uh, import of tools, and I show a number of tools in the book, which are anti-corruption agencies, uh, ombudsman, party finance regulation. I didn't go into this, but sadly, you know, we find evidence not only that the more corrupt countries have the more restrictive party finance regulation, but amazing enough, People who adopted more regulations over over the last 10 years progressed less than people who adopted less regulations, which is so counterintuitive, right? So I am completely against this repertory of tools. So if by tools you understand institutions, then I'm against institutions, but I don't call them institutions very much, right? And what I am in favor is of solutions to solve collective action problems. And I didn't go into this at all, but these solutions have to be quite creative. So they're not really, I mean, I told you that you have to, you know, do this civil society thing and do this tool, you know. The metaphor that I use in the book is that I say, you know, UNCAC seems irrelevant, recommends countries to adopt a number of things that I find that all of them don't work. Okay, but if we conceive it otherwise, if we conceive that these tools are like, let's say, grenades, that nobody pulled the pin off and you just throw these unexploded grenades after a wall and they stay there, unless there is enough collective action that people pull the pin off, then you get a little bit how it works, right? And how does it work? Um, I'll give you an example to make this more, uh, more concrete more or less. I organize something, for instance, which is an integrity ranking for universities. Now, we sit in Harvard, and it really seems very unbelievable. But you must conceive that uh, out there, a lot of universities exist just in order to sell diplomas, sell PhDs, and, and whatever, right? where students really buy exams and something. And my country, my original country, is is a country like this. And there are also other papers about Kazakhstan and increasingly about Russia, which used to be a country with top-quality universities. But these days, they sell a lot of PhDs, right? And uh, there is really a big collective action problem, because what happened is that people who are best in these universities left. They went to to better universities in other countries. People who are there enjoy autonomy of universities, so it's not like from top down, the neo patrimonial dictators tells them what to do in universities. No, they close ranks themselves. And against whom? Against young, bright people, such as those that I see in this audience, who would, if they want to go back to their countries and become assistant professors, they would discover that they are denied entry in these universities, who want to, you know, keep their family rules and operate and, and, and spoil and sell diplomas in the future. Now, what do you do in a situation like this? And this is also, you know, comes to the hard core of my argument that in corrupt societies, it is actually the society itself which becomes quite corrupt. It's not just the government, but all the groups, all the status groups in various professions close it down. And this is what makes, for instance, Italy understandable. Italy doesn't change, they change a lot of governments. But it's just politicians. But status groups exist in academia, for instance, who do not allow it to be entirely open in the sense that it is open, for instance, in the United States. So, how do you operate with this situation? So I published a story in Times Higher Education Supplement on how we do it. I'm not saying we succeeded, but we're progressing on this. I publish an integrity ranking of universities. If you want, it's a corruption ranking of universities. I first call it a corruption ranking, and I advertise it like saying, you know, students have to know when they go to university. They have to know how much an exam costs, they have to know You know, if you buy a dissertation online, it's full of, you know, it's full of websites which sells these dissertations, and quite funny, I mean, the funniest slogan that I've seen of one of them actually says, uh, we are the only website where you can buy a fully original PhD, crafted for you, you know, (laughs) nobody else, we don't recycle them, okay? So you have to have some expectations, right? And according to this, you will pay this university. I mean, I agree, I understand. It's a market. People buy diplomas. This market has some perverse incentives which generated it. It's a market for credentials out there, All all this would not happen, right? And in corrupt countries, people just need to produce a diploma. Nobody cares for their skills, or again, this would not happen. So I understand, OK, I understand. But also, we have to bring it in the open. People have to know what, what it's expected. Now, whom can you ground this on? I mean, the problem is that all this establishments are corrupt, rectors are the most corrupt. When I heard that in Peru, somebody who read this uh, this thing of mine three, four years ago, because it was published by Transparency, organized a similar campaign in Peru, and I realized they actually had more success than I did because at the end of their campaign, where they managed to mobilize a lot of students, all the rectors, the council of rectors in Peru, uh, resigned. They closed it, and this is exactly what it should happen, you know, to really manage to, to kill the status group because it was them who were opposing reforms. So whom did I rely this on? People who have graduated from uh, Western universities and return and try to enter in the system. Let's say some of them teach here and there, but they don't really have chairs. And these people I recruited as evaluators. Unions, unions naturally get into conflict now and then, some unions with the administration due to labor conflict. Some unions are very conservative, but others not. I managed to find some unions who at least claim they are interested in integrity and reputation. I brought them on board. Students. Organizations of students, students want quality because, you know, we live in European Union, it's a common labor market, you want to go abroad and you don't want to have a diploma which is Mm -hmm. worthless. Brought students on board, some better professional associations, which ones? Those associated with disciplines which are not crooked, like mathematics, physics, biology, those are good, right? Those associated with law, a disaster, they only give fake degrees to all politicians, county heads of police, uh, heads of courts, there's nobody who doesn't have a plagiarized degree. And this is the coalition. And this coalition then assesses these universities in a very open process. You go in the university, you tell them, people who don't cooperate get a bad degree, so I send everyone a letter saying, welcome to our exercise of evaluation and self-evaluation and whatever, your response is part of this evaluation, right? So that they know, first time they sent me lawyers seven years ago, I said, okay, send me lawyers, I'll send you lawyers, I'll show you're a public university, you get money, you have to undergo this. And in the end, I do a big show on the stage of the National Theater. In Romania, where I put the first three, uh, you know, the least corrupt of them, nobody ever gets. I give stars, like for cognac, right? Five stars, if you're a good university. I never managed to give five stars to anybody, but I gave four stars to three people, and they all participate. I mean, participation is essential. The three rectors came to collect their four stars and be on the stage, so this, you know, works. And in the next year, a lot of universities actually appointed a deputy rector with the task of improving in this ranking. Because it's detrimental to be. So, you know, that's a long story, a complicated example. But you would be surprised that many people do innovative things like this around the world. I mean, I always collect them on my webpage, which is againstcorruption.eu. I now have a repository of this kind of ideas people who create integrity markets and do other kinds of ideas, trying to solve exactly these collective action problems.
3: Hi, uh, Bill Overholt from the Asia Center. Um, you uh, pre- presented findings uh, uh, applicable to corruption very broadly defined. Uh, in, the, in some of the literature corruption is segmented uh, uh, classically the graft is one kind and that's uh, a tip for getting your job done. Uh, in China the tips are very big but the roads get built and the kids get educated. And then corruption is where you can buy an official not to do his job. Uh, And that's India where the the payments are probably similar in scale, but uh, the roads don't get built and the children don't get educated. And and then there's what the Japanese call uh, structural corruption, where almost all individuals are honest. But five interest groups control the political system, so uh, and the construction uh, group is the most imp- most powerful, and so they build they build more than all of the United States their construction the government construction b- budget for a country the size of California is larger than that of the United States, and uh, Fukushima nuclear plant didn't have to obey any of the rules, because uh, because it's part of the construction lobby. Uh, I wonder what, would, does your theory apply equally to all these kinds of, uh, of corruption? Uh, uh, would it be useful to segment, within your findings, would it, would it be useful to segment the applicability to different kinds of corruption.
1: Thank you for this. So um, the short answer is that I would say that there is a category, which is um, to which my theory does not apply. This is what I call corruption as policy failure, in which I really do not consider and treat as corruption. Now, what is corruption as policy failure is the situation in which you know that from the very very first uh, reports on corruption by Paolo Mauro from IMF. It was found, and it still holds, that corrupt countries, for instance, have the smallest health budgets. They put a lot of money into discretionary projects. They claim to do airports, uh, soccer stadiums, whatever. But very little into health and education, right? and. Uh, Therefore, people who need to get this health and education go there on the claim of universalistic coverage, but this doesn't actually exist. It's a very limited health fund which is immediately exhausted. And in order to get in, you have to, to pay a doctor. Doctors are traditionally not paid. You know, I mean I consider that doctors in Romania are not paid. They're paid two hundred residents are paid two hundred and fifty Euros per month and they live in the European Union, all right. So basically the government presumes, considers it's very unpopular to pass a tax. Uh, to increase, you know, health spending. Plus, it will never get to health, even if you if you get a tax increase, uh, and therefore is the population into paying the doctors directly. This doesn't mean that corruption doesn't exist in health. There are also genuine corruption in health. Let's say the top surgeon who has a monopoly doesn't make twice his income as the resident out of gifts. He makes it 20 times, 30 times. He restricts the access of other people to profession. Right? Also, there's procurement in health and a number of other things. So this corruption as policy failure, I consider that this paradigm that I create doesn't apply. For the rest, I consider that it applies Everywhere and you can everywhere monitor for instance in the examples that you have given you can monitor market favors right as um, Michael Johnston called them you can monitor market favors and you will always find the same situation that somebody got a favor and somebody else got a disadvantage due to abuse of of authority you can monitor this and you can you know come to the same situation and I think it's simpler this way. I think it's simpler and I think that if we do this kind of monitoring, I mean I hear for instance a lot about corruption in the United States and undue relations between politicians and all this discussion about party funding and whatever, but what I think that what is the most practical thing to do is to prevent politicians or power holders from reciprocating. Believe me nobody is going to pay them indefinitely if they cannot give anything back, right? And if you monitor for instance legislation, so that no favors results, that's, that's enough for me. And the, the, I would say something like this, that if you look, if you take it as a circle, if you consider the whole universe, are all government transactions in an area. It can be release of property papers, for instance, right? Or it can be health. And if you look, you will find, I mean, we have lots of evidence on this on the book and on the website, you will find that uh, in most corrupt countries, probably two-thirds are on the basis of non-monetary favoritism, of one sort or another, of influence, traffic, of all sign of connections and relations. Then you will find a group which bribes, but more often than not, the group, which bribes is to buy excess, because it's it's not connected, and then you will find a you know a, a percentage, and this is the percentage that we have to to push up of uh, of people who manage to make the government deliver as it should without any connection and without any any monetary exchange. And the individual thing, if that person you know uh, takes graft or just takes a favor or is just a relative, I think that these are just means. I don't treat this as as categories. You, know, you see what I mean? I mean, they're just a way of describing the situation. They're not ways of of uh, conceptualizing the situation. OK, we have 13 minutes left. I'd like to get some more.
4: Thank you. Uh, very brief, um, Alina. You have mentioned you consider agency approach in uh, evaluation of corruption. What about structural approach? For example, the importance of religion. Protestant cultures maybe are less prone to re- to corruption. Another one: perception of corruption index. Is it correlated with your index, or is it different, and in which sense? In last one, in my study, with perception perception okay, of okay. Corruption, so
1: corruption. index. I didn't
4: understand. Uh, there is perception of corruption index that is unbiasing international corruption transparency, something like that and I use it in my research and I was wondering if it's related with your index or it's different because what I have found out with this perception of corruption index is that strong autocracy have a lower level of corruption just like strong democracy whatever is in between has a higher level of corruption according to perception of corruption but I wonder if you have found the same kind of results and uh, well, I uh, you mentioned Germany was not visible because was online i was uh, striving to find china because it's autocracy i was wondering maybe it's china just as good as germany in terms of corruption would be kind of fun to think about that. well uh, just for the sake of time i better pass it to me this person
1: okay the corruption perception index uh, and our index i didn't speak about it at all so anastasia is into uh, more knowledge than other people here. So, on the basis of my model, you realize that I can very easily operationalize and produce an index which is objective. So, roughly, I have a number of variables. Of course, development variables influence all my variables, right? Your civil society is a matter of, of your development. So is your number of internet connections, a number of other things, right? So, I presume this, and what I do is that I simply come up with the number of variables that I cluster together. They cluster nicely. I extract a principal component out of them. They're just six. And they're all actionable variable. And this is the index of public integrity, which we have just launched for EU in January as part of the new approach to integrity by the Dutch EU presidency, and that we're going to launch at the OECD Integrity Week in April for the rest of the world, for 115 countries, right? So it is an. Actionable instrument which correlates 90% with Transparency International, mm-hmm. but the difference is, and the World Bank control of corruption, but the difference is that you see very clearly the areas of resources and connections. So it's composed in a part of ease of doing business, e government offers, fiscal transparency, right, e citizens, uh, judicial independence, and I forgot what the six is, right? And you see exactly, and you can progress from one year to another. Actually, when we start now, we will start we have data for the past three years, so we will show that there was change in the last three years. Greece, for instance, poor Greece, progressed a lot because it was, you know, pushed around. They had to cut time to pay taxes, they had to do a number of things. They are not happy about this. They say it's not sustainable. Nobody wanted these changes pushed by international donors. But you see that they change, right? Romania changed. You know, Romania left Bulgaria on the last European I mean Romania and Bulgaria as a ground rule, they you ordinarily dispute the last uh, (laughs) position in EU28. You know, well, we really dumped Bulgaria on EU28, and we are up three positions. We even left uh, Croatia and the Czech Republic behind, due to reforms in the past two years, right? And these reforms, only a part of them are arrests. What are popular, particularly at USAID, and uh, the American diplomats are arrested in Romania. They love this. I mean, if everybody could just, you know, listen to the Americans and arrest everybody. Romania has 18 ministers in jail for the past three years, which is now by now creating major democracy problems, right? And the number of allocations is 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 improving. It fell from particularistic allocations nearly 60 percent to 49, which I think is good. Is not bad.
0: Uh, Alina, can I just follow up on this? So basically what she's asking you is how sensitive are your findings to your index? And I think your answer is you could use the World Bank governance, control of corruption, you could use corruption perceptions, and you're going to find the same thing, right?
1: Yes, but the difference is I do not ask people, since my index has all these components, Yeah. I do not encourage people to use my index as a dependent for regressions. I mean, they can. But it's not.
0: You're using it as a dependent for regressions.
1: My index, no, 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 not at all. I want control of corruption. My index is simply made for governments. That's why I come up with a big website where everyone sees, you know. And your
0: your sorry, your DB is the World Bank Control of Corruption index. Yes, yes, yes. Which I think includes the Transparency International as one of the components, doesn't
1: it? No, no. It basically has the same components, but why Transparency International made some mistakes at the start. So in other words, their second year index is based on their first year index. They're not independent, so it should not be used at all in time series. Uh, control of corruption from Orban Bank can be used, and it's quite transparent. You see the difference across sources. For the rest, you have to believe in experts or not believe in experts, or believe that Rwanda is doing better than Bulgaria and Romania, which is sometimes hard to, to believe. Yes, yes. Uh,
2: you didn't tell us about the Sicilian, uh,
3: uh, and you did tell us about Italy, uh, both um, as... <laughs> Uh, approach number 3 in the medieval times. I'm curious was that the area of Bologna or was it uh, all over because I don't think the culture uh, is the same all over Italy, yes. as somebody
0: who teaches here Can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, what's the what are the Sicilian villages? So first about Italy. Uh, Italy had what I think quite reasonable designs to quote Miss Marple. Uh, seeing that human nature is what it is, Italy had very reasonable good governance, in other words, corrupt, uh, good governance design in the the Middle Ages, where I look at. And the examples of good governance that I look at are Venice, Florence, uh, Genoa, Siena, which are really, really great examples. Some of them uh, could be lessons to donor agencies of our days. For instance, you know, the city manager, uh, the Podesta or the governor of a Genoese colony was only paid at the end. He would otherwise advance. He only had a limited mandate of one year. He came with all his staff, his own judge, his law enforcers, the police. He would run the, and only after the final audit at the end would he have been paid, reimbursed, in other words, all right? which is more or less what the European Union is trying to do in, in some of our countries. I mean, it works, you are allegedly have EU funds, but you are actually reimbursed. And this is why you, some countries now have deficits because they spent corruptly, and the EU is not reimbursing them, right? But it still leaves the problem of how to prevent them you know, through, from spending in, in that places. These days, uh, I'm not working so much on Italy, but I have a group of people who work on Italy. You have to understand that, for instance, the big Italian scandal, the Tangentopoli, started in Milan which is a traditionally uh, well-governed area. You know, there are people who argue that Milan and Vienna but are as well-governed, but still, they had a commission in Milan on all public works. This was Tangentopoli, which was 16%, and this is what started the Mani And these days, it seems that it happens all over again. So in other words, all kind of policy efforts, which tend to have unintended consequences, managed to move the mafia from its concentrated area in Sicily, Calabria, Campania, and uh, now you can find there's a colleague of mine in this project, which calculates the index of capture of public services in Italian municipalities by mafia. So in other words, now cities in Emilia-Romagna or the Putnam traditionally well-governed areas, these days work to tend to work with mafia and entrust them with collecting their garbage or anything else as much as cities on the south, or even more. You know, This is fascinating work. The name of this scholar is Francesco Calderoni. It's It's quite nice what he does. Well, what are my Sicilian villagers are another example like the universities of this uh, social accountability approach that I recommend. There is this very famous village in Sicily, which was the recipient of very high EU funds. In other words, a lot of resources for corruption for the local mayor, elite. Whoever for 20 years they received money, so they have a glorious beach, but they were given money to do an Olympic-sized pool. You know, nobody ever goes there and will ever organize that, 800 inhabitants. And the same with a big saucer stadium, And none of these works were finished over 20 years. However, they never had a negative EU evaluation, because EU evaluation is centered on accounting. And if you really, you know, you said you want to do a soccer stadium, well, you said you are doing a soccer stadium. You paid correctly, I mean, are all the bills there? Are all the bills there, you know? So you can end up with really nothing, spending all this money, mayor gets re-elected due to all these projects, you know, and in the end of the day, in the end of the day, it's a disaster. You know, the city has unemployment 40% and nothing happens. And my very moderate suggestion to this was that If we have involved the villagers into what is European money good for your village, I mean, what do you need it for, into how it is managed and into some form of audit and final evaluation, we would not be after 25 years with nothing to show for the money. You would be surprised, but this is simply not how EU funds work. You find Europe in such a deficit of image, really. I mean, we want people to love us. We have never been so low on trust. But we throw away all this European funding, and then Mr. Varoufakis, comes and says but what was European fund good for? It only helped the corrupt Greek elites to consolidate the rule, you know, and a lot of people buy this and they buy this because actually it is true, right? So what happens after I wrote this? I wrote this and I published this. And apparently, somebody in Greece, an entrepreneur in Greece, read this. And he wrote a project, a pilot project in five European countries, which was called Ask the Villager. And he proposed a project to the European Commission to pilot a new way of organizing EU funds, so that at least they stop being a resource for corruption, if not delivering something. And he was funded. He got I don't know how many millions. You know, I'm on his advisory board. I don't know what he's doing there. I have to check that the money is not spent corruptly, right? But. <laughs> But uh, there is some understanding of this argument. This is what I'm saying. Things are changing. Austerity changed many things. People have high demands these days from uh, how we spend public money, and we have to take advantage of this.
0: We have time for one more question. So, uh, there is this la- lady
1: la- there who's been very patient, actually. OK.
0: Oh, OK. Oh, sorry. Actually, let's take both questions. And very generous, yes. And then answer them.
1: Thank you. Um, my name is Ioana Delano. I'm from the law school, Yale Law School. Um, I apologize for that. Um, so my, my question uh, is, if, if we believe that, that corruption is uh, is a consequence of, of uh, a problem in society, for instance, inequality or bad governance, inefficient governance, I wonder exactly what the outcome of putting so many ministers in, in jail is. Because uh, in, in Romania, every other minister is put in jail for corruption. And I think there is a sudden degree of uncertainty to the future of Romania and to the actual effect that putting people in jail has. It doesn't seem to solve the basic problems that basically encourage cor- corruption to take place. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on this. What do we solve by putting people in jail? Do we really target the problem? The other one, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for your presentation. I was wondering, so you said that some of the recommendations, such as the creation of an anti-corruption office or an ombudsman's office, doesn't really work for sort of reducing corruption. But I wonder to what extent your data can prove that. Because I think that based
4: on case analysis, you can see that even in the few cases in which some people could do something, those agencies actually helped. So I'm a bit agno- sort of skeptical about the fact
1: that they don't work. Yeah. Thank you. Great. So actually the questions are about the same thing, is about this legal, um, you know, the legal impact of this. So I think that putting people in jail helps. And in all this, uh, why does it help? Uh, Of course it's an unlimited number of these people, you know, I mean the metaphor to look at this political parties in corrupt countries, First, they're really like medieval armies who receive no salaries. I mean, salaries are very low, meager. And so they are told that uh, you, you just have to live out of spoils. This is how parties are organized, right? And they know this. They deliberately know this. They go into politics knowing that this is what they have to do. You keep a share, and the rest goes to the party coffers. So it's an organization, right? I mean, the only difference between organized crime and parties in new democracies, as my colleagues tend to say, uh, we have a group which is into organized crime, is that organized crime doesn't run in elections. That is the only difference. Otherwise, this is more or less how it works. And that means that they have an endless supply of these people. I mean, uh, imagine that uh, you shoot more on them the ever, that's a battle, but other people simply step up and amazing enough with amazing courage, to my opinion, because the risk has grown up tremendously, uh, fill their shoes. And this is why I argue that you have to do all the other rest of the circle, all these reforms, reducing power discretion, reducing red tape, cutting their opportunities, very much what Mart Lahr did in Estonia, and I have, you know, ample detail in 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 the book. And now with the Dutch presidency report, I go country by country. Roughly, I started with Romania last week, which has a eurocrat prime minister for ten months. So we thought, what can we do in ten months before the parties return? So we simply came up with everything that we can do. You know, killing all the monopolies because it will be far more difficult for them to reinstate them. So that's what you have to do. You have to reduce resources. You cannot just figure, but. Arresting people helps because it sends a signal that it's the end of impunity. And this you have to do in this country. So the first battle that you have to wage is that the norm has changed. Right? The norm has changed. My organization in Romania trained over 1,000 judges with people from Brussels. Most of these judges didn't understand any foreign language, so you would consider that was a loss of time. It wasn't a loss of time. After that year, they started sentencing people because they, wouldn't, they didn't sentence anyone. Why? Because they were sent the signal that the country is run from Brussels, and there is no longer just the traditional power here, but you're now in a broader community. Other expectations, you know, and this helped. This helped the judges uh, move on. On the anti-corruption agencies, well, uh, there is this is a consistent statistical finding on anti-corruption agency. I would fully agree with you that there are limits to to statistics. Okay, but uh, from the very early on, when Daniel Kaufman first did this, first he found that. More corrupt countries have anti-corruption agencies and there are a number of reasons why anti-corruption agencies didn't uh, deliver very much. One reason is that they tend to be used against political opponents, really very, very much so. I mean, I still have to see, uh, only now in Romania, it took, in the last three years, two governments which fell due to popular pressure before term force someone in government to be arrested. Otherwise, although the country was praised as a big example, somehow it was only ministers who were no longer in government who got arrested by the agencies. And this uh, this is not good. I mean, this is actually quite detrimental. The anti-corruption president of Romania, in the second mandate, who the man who created the NGC, in the second mandate, he was completely above the law. Only now, after he fell, it turned out that he appointed his lover in charge of all EU funds, that they spoiled the privatization fund of, of an amount of you know over one billion. You imagine yourself, how can an anti-corruption president do that? Well, you know, he did that in the same time as Romania's anti-corruption agency was praised as the most successful around the world. So I think that in the end of the day, what makes a successful anti-corruption agency? They want to be judged by file, but it is a broader policy that you have to understand. What I look at, and that is definitely not the fault of agencies, I look at if the patterns of distribution in the countries change. Okay, what you can argue, and with very good reason, is that it's not just up to them. I mean, there are lots of other factors that I show which influence these patterns of distribution and this control of corruption, not just the agency itself. But that's exactly what I argue, is that the turning the agency into a silver bullet, it's completely wrong. We have no situation where the country rating is improved to open access due to one agency. Except, you know, if you look at Australia or, or Hong Kong, which I can explain that uh, there are a bit of different situations. They never had this particularism over 50% that, that we have.
0: Anti-corruption agency may be more workable than importing the King of Denmark.
1: Well, you may already have. I mean, look at Bhutan. Kings of Denmark do exist to these days, you know. And we have to do something to encourage other emirs and other people who in recent years separated their budget from the public budget from the first time, so they absolutely need encouragement. They need to think that this positive model exists.
0: All right. On that note, please join me in thanking Alina for a fantastic talk. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.